All right, so gents, you have uh, the that annual Christmas party, holiday party that you look forward to, where you're going to gather and uh, see, you know, a bunch of people that you've worked with throughout the year, folks that you haven't had the opportunity to catch up with. You're going to see them, you know, uh, once before they head off uh, home to their families and uh, and the like over the holiday season. You're going to celebrate together the successes and uh, gossip around each other's backs and, uh, you know, basically make fun of the of the interns who can't withstand their liquor, that type of thing. Uh, and then somebody comes into the room and says, we need all 16 of you to sit down and watch a Republican debate on News Nation, a channel that we couldn't find until about 15 minutes ago. Uh, and you're all going to need to get your laptops and do that now. The booze is going away and you have to do your jobs. How do you feel in that moment? Well, I would say a, bring the booze back out. <laughs> yeah, and there's a there's a there's a distinction to be made between like regular people and politico staffers, you know? Because <laughs> I think, you know, regular people would be pretty pissed off about that, but politico staffers are a kind of news pervert, I guess I would say. You know, they're like this really really sick news psych get them off They're, these are people who are like we're like actually into i mean look it's funny funny to, to, for me to be saying this coming from a, a, a guy you know on a, on a 2024 election podcast but like you know gentlemen we have ecumenical interests we're interested in ideas we've got we you know we we mix it up with the sports and the pop culture and stuff but politico staffers and writers are automata that only care about horse race stuff and every morning when they wake up, they say, what will drive the day? Who will win the morning? And what will, you know, and and, and, and which sort of meaningless, ephemeral, uh, you know, uh, horse race, you know, detail or factoid will I break first today? So I think in their very narrow world, they were probably super excited by it. I think it was, you know, like, you know, you know, two great things that taste great together. I mean, I think I think you have to be pretty perverse when it comes to politics to enjoy something like that. I mean, you know, come on, you know, especially just given the fact that, you know, it's it's such an obvious undercard debate. Uh, and, you know, you, you know, again, the, the thing that, that I you know have pointed out, I think, before in this is that similarly to late night television, you know that if there was anything good that happened that came out of it, You'll be able to see the clip. You'll find it. Okay. Now you might have to dig around a bunch of uh, inaccurate headlines and uh, and you know ridiculously over the top mediaite <laughs> takes on things, but you know it, it'll be available to you in the morning. So why not just you know go ahead and and hand around the Baileys because it's like it just doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah, but again, it, it you know that makes sense for you, but like think about it like it's to them it's like watching your home team. DVR, watch you know watching a game a, a sports game not live you know a, 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 a sunday football game or a playoff game not live but after you already know the score it's just it ain't the same and if you're a, a political level you know news pervert then it's not the same so i'm gonna take a little bit of a different tack here on this i think and i i think there's something to admire about uh, you know politico's newsroom leadership uh, you know, basically within 24 hours of the Washington Post, uh, you know, writers, union, guild, people uh, walking out for 24 hours because apparently uh, democracy only dies in darkness uh, 364 days of the year, um, <laughs> you know, that you basically made uh, your your journos watch 
I mean, you know, essentially like a county council debate, you know, with, I mean, the, I mean, seriously, the implications are essentially that at this point. And, you know, we saw the proof of life photo with all of them sitting there with their laptops. Um, You know, if ever there was a time, I mean, look, they get it. They get chat GPT is coming and, you know, say, Hey, write me a summer, you know, write me 800 words in American English uh, with one, one, you know, one space after a period about the Republican debate last night. That you know, it's important that they you know continue to show that the meat space can produce too, because you know, who knows what uh, what world we're going to move to? Uh, who or what algorithm is going to write our news in the next cycle? Yeah, you you definitely do have to you know stay on your toes. But I I just think I think it's an expression of the absurdity of our times that we have this level of attention paid to things from uh, these newsrooms at the same time that like is there a state house reporter? in all 50 states you know like like does that person exist <laughs> you know so we have this complete devil uh this uh, complete destruction of local news of of p- people playing paying attention to things that are close to them and then you have to have 16 people to watch the debate between desantis haley ramaswamy and christie uh none of whom are likely to be the nominee of their party or president well, yeah, it's like, but you, I mean, you hit on something really deep and probably beyond the scope of the current conversation, but like, you know, how do you monetize New, newsrooms have spent a lot of time trying to figure out how you make money with state house reporting when not a lot of people will pay a lot of money for, for journalism. And what was it? Dean Beckett of, of the New York times said, like the New York times is a collection of juicy narratives. Right. And that is the only one of the you know few places that you can make money in political journalism. And, and it explains not just Politico's model, but the, you know, three or four Politico copycats that have spun off in the last five, six years. That's their model. It's it's narrative development. It's it's a place for partisans and operators on both sides to place narratives, to goose narratives, to drive narratives. So, I mean, the, the incentives are there for this kind of 16 people watching a pointless debate journalism but the financial centers are not there for the for the real civilly vital functions of journalism and the irony is that we've never had a a a journalistic class more high on its own supply with the democracy dies in darkness stuff or we speak truth to power or you know we punch up and not punch down you know and, and you know comparing themselves to you know we've got we've got dem staffers comparing themselves to publius writing the federalist um, and at a time when their job is the least consequential, the least civically important. Uh, I, I just would uh, like to read uh, something quickly to you, um, uh, uh, John. Uh, the main takeaways from the debate are Ron DeSantis and Vivek Ramaswamy criticized Nikki Haley's record and experience as a politician. DeSantis emphasized his record as Florida's governor and his focus on education and immigration. Ramaswamy focused on his outsider status and argued for a return to traditional values, while Haley defended her record as a governor and touted her foreign policy experience. Overall, the debate was lively and showed how the candidates are positioning themselves in the race. It's still early in the primary season. Nobody's voting yet, but it was an interesting glimpse into where the candidates stand on key issues. That took 10 seconds. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so so that's what everybody in that room is up against uh, thank you thank you very much ai <laughs> so this is thunderdome and we have plenty to talk about including not one but two debates because we actually recorded our last episode 
uh, before the debate that um, outside of the, uh, I believe the first uh, two Fox debates and the NBC debate, you know, actually, you know, definitely is going to get the, the, the highest score. I can't believe that News Nation is going to uh, rival the almost 5 million uh, people who watched the Newsom-DeSantis uh, debate last week. Uh, which was very uh, interesting and I think, you know, provided us with a very different contrast than we've been getting through the debate cycle. Uh, I'm curious just as to your reactions to that and uh, and what came out of it, given your predictions of what was going to go on and, and, and the challenges. Uh, you know, I know that both of you had sort of uh, talked about the challenges face unique challenges facing DeSantis in that moment, given that sort of Newsom had nothing to lose in it. Yeah, and I, I think that you know, I was wrong on one big thing about Newsom, um, and I guess as a as a center right partisan or center right uh, person, I was happily wrong about it. I thought Newsom was going to be much more triangulate and much more New Democrat and trying to appeal to a broad cross section of voters and position himself as as a general election candidate, um, as opposed to as a cheerleader for sort of Bidenism and as a good soldier for the, for the center of the democratic party, the, the center of gravity of the de- democratic party, just not to say the political center. Um, and I don't think that's what we saw. I think, I think Newsom was much more, uh, a, a good soldier and, um, was frequently on his back foot and, and, and also was a good soldier for Donald Trump is one of the, you know, the bigger surprises that came out of it is that, you know, he leveled that, you know, um, by now familiar attack on DeSantis from uh, Democrats who are more sort of interested in, um, in in laying DeSantis low for his perceived also ran status um, and, and the, you know, failure to launch of his challenge to Trump than they are in having a debate about, you know, whether DeSantis's ideas are better than the Democratic Party's ideas. And so I think we saw a little bit more of that Newsom and a little bit more of the um, progressive puncher uh, Newsom, and a little bit more of the used car salesman Newsom. And I think um, even though, you know, the, the consensus tended to be that his stage presence was better, um, you know, he's got big, important hair and, uh, you know, a, a, a thousand megawatt smile and all that stuff. And I think the consensus was that, you know, he looked the part. He also had it. And I know you, you agree with this, Ben, he has a kind of reptilian, xenomorph kind of vibe to him too and i think you saw both sides of that um and uh so so from a sort of you know superficial level or sort of optics level um mixed bag on the substance i mean i thought desantis you know one coming and going but what was kind of disheartening or i guess not disheartening but um i guess sobering was to just look at the spin after the fact and realize the extent to which either the debate was actually sort sort of like partisan Rorschach, um, where plenty of Democratic and progressive partisans saw Newsom mopping the floor of that d- debate. Or if you want to be cynical, they didn't see that, but they were were good in their message discipline and suggested that that's what happened, even if they perhaps saw it as more close cut or cutting against Newsom in their heart of hearts. There was good democratic partisan message discipline after the fact and so you ended up with this kind of wash in terms of people's um response to it at least in 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 the you know sort of commentariat um but i thought on the substance you know 
you know, DeSantis mopped the floor with him because he had better facts. And if you're going to put Florida against California in terms of governance, I mean, Florida's got its problems, but I, you know, I think, I think that's pretty clear cut. Um, so, you know, I thought, you know, DeSantis bet, you know, better on substance, had better facts on his side. Newsom obviously cuts a little bit more of a comfortable media friendly figure than DeSantis, but um, you know, the, the, the win for me, and so far as it matters is, you know, you actually had a debate um, between two people who are going to be alive in 10 years. And that's, you know, that, that, that was the biggest thing to come out of it for me. <laughs> John. I'm going to be honest. Um, I watched about 20 minutes of the debate online after the fact it is holiday party season, as you had mentioned. So I was, mm-hmm. uh, you know, trying to, you know, enjoy myself instead of, you know, subject myself uh, as I have for the last several months. Uh, to to deal with this stuff for our our wonderful listeners, but um, I think I agree with a lot of of what Dan said, and I, I was also kind of surprised too. Um, I mean, it was sort of the the passion of the Newsom of like, hey, I'm just gonna let myself just take the incoming for for the president um, and be a good soldier. And you know, look, I don't think I don't think Gavin's a dumb guy, so that that, that was clearly the calculation that they thought was going to make sense. Uh, was the position himself in that way. I agreed. I thought that you would expect him to triangulate a little bit more. Um, and on the very first question, I mean, he, you know, uh, apparently my, me and Chris Christie are like the only people in the world now who actually want people to answer questions in the debates uh, and not like completely pivot away to something else. And where we're Newsom just like basically refused to answer why so many people have left California in the last few years. Um you know, I, I thought, I mean, like, you, like you should be prepared for that. Um, in some ways, he's kind of like both the, you know, the like a more visually appealing, but poor man's version of Bill Clinton. Um, you know, that he has that sort of, there is kind of an innate charisma to him that, you know, he's going to have a shelf life in, in democratic politics. But it did seem like this is like the best version of Ron DeSantis, where I, I think that the the challenge that he has and you, you see this even on Capitol Hill right now with like really substantive, you know, senators or, or you know members of Congress. Of this is this is you know or, or people long time washing the hands will still talk about oh, we just really need to get stuff done, and you know I personally am for that too. But you know I'll sort of squint a little bit and be like, but like that's not what this game is anymore, right? This is this is clicks and clout and you know followers and content development. Um, you know, I, I think at one point a couple of years ago, Ben, you had some sort of tweet that this is basically, you know, Eric Swalwell, Matt Gates's world, you know, kind yeah. of going forward. Um, and to that point, you know, this DeSantis has kind of like the right, uh, you know, he's like basically the guy that's like a great singer, but like does not have like the, the laser light show quite down the way that people want it to be. So, you know, it kind of gets lost in the shuffle. And I, I think, again, putting, I think, Newsom is a substantially better foil for DeSantis. DeSantis actually looked to be enjoying himself as opposed to just like sheer agony. Um, I think that like, you know, I know there was like sort of the petty things of like, oh, DeSantis doesn't have this particular kind of smile, a term I'd never heard of before. I guess it was like Duchesne smile, something like that. Yes, uh, it is, and, it is the, um, it's the word for when you smile broadly enough that it makes the your eyes crinkle, or in my case, it makes your eyes eyes actually disappear. <laughs> <laughs> um, but 
I mean, at some point it's like, he should just chop, chop. He's, he's not a smiler. He's not a smiling guy. And, you know, maybe, maybe, you know, again, I'm the guy that always wants the boring Midwestern governor. And I, I believe his, if I'm not mistaken, I think DeSantis's parents are from Ohio, which like mm. perfectly fits, but um, you know, like he's not that guy. So don't, don't be that guy. Be, be who you are. Be this just basically like terminator of like policy wins for, you know, middle-class families and, you know, his, it's, it's like, I, I feel like I sort of beat on him a lot because I'm actually the most frustrated because I still think he is, would be probably the best president. Um, and, you know, his, 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 his unwillingness to triangulate along the way, even on some stuff like, you know, like the environment where, you know, again, it's like everyone likes to, you know, beat on like environmentalists, but I think he could talk about stuff. And, and he sort of did and got a little bit defensive. I remember with Haley and one, I think the last debate about, you know, development in the Everglades or something like that. Um, but I, I feel like there are there are layers to him that he sort of refuses to see or refuses to show because everyone is sort of playing this weird game. And I'm sure we'll get into it about you know, last mm-hmm. night's debate. But it, it, it did feel like that there was like a little bit of wind in his sails. And he was actually in sort of more of the intellectual street fight that he is purpose built for. Yeah. yeah. Well, I'd like to get into that a bit. One one thing that I was going to point out is um, the smile thing kind of reminds me about like the critiques that were lodged against someone like like, uh, you know, Richard Nixon or something like that, where it's just like someone who is, you know, uh, just it's a different type of of it's it's an authentic awkwardness versus like an inauthentic geniality. Um, that I think a lot of these politicians get caught between, uh, you know, one of the things that I remember learning about Nixon early on is that, you know, his, his hair was always sort of out of, out of step with the times. Like he, you know, he had sort of this weird slicked back hairdo that wasn't, that didn't look like any of the other politicians at the time. Uh, and the reason was that when he was three years old, he had gotten thrown from a horse and buggy, uh, and gotten run over by the wheel. Uh, and he had a big scar that he basically had to hide by like parting his hair that way. Um, and I feel like with a lot of these kind of uh, these these awkward politicians, when you actually get through the veneer, there's a reason that they're awkward. I don't really know why DeSantis is awkward the way that he is. Um, you know, it can be as simple as as just being a nerd, but there's usually a reason. Um, and sometimes we have the opportunity to figure out what that reason is. Sometimes we never learn it. Um, but when it comes to well, there's a there's two there's there's you know it's it's maybe an obvious point, but there are multiple sets of skills or multiple skills that are necessary to be an effective winning politician. And you know it's perhaps banal to point out, but the set of skills it takes to win a race is not the same set of skills it takes to govern effectively, having won it. Right. But but that's also not the same set of skills that it takes to raise the money to win the race. Right. So there's you know, the the true greats have enough filling up each of those enough talent in each of those buckets that they, you know, are generational. Bill Clinton, obviously, generational talent in all of those spaces. Um, You know, Ronald Reagan, uh, again, obviously, generational talent in all those spaces. You know, DeSantis reminds me a little bit more of somebody like Paul Ryan, who is a little one dimensional in terms of that, of, of that skill set, And, you know, it comes, it comes out something, you know, that, that John said that he said, he's that, he's that, you know, um, that guy with a great voice who doesn't necessarily have the 
stage presence. I remember Jack Black used to talk about how he liked the seventies as an era of music because it had the most ugly rock stars and <laughs> he could, he could, you know, associate himself with that. And I'm very sympathetic to that. Like an era of, you know, slightly overweight on a, not conventionally attractive guys who nevertheless were world beating, you know, rock stars and sold 10 million records and sold out arenas all over the world. Like we are not in a, in a ugly rock star period of american politics yeah of course the great the great irony on top of all of this of course is like you know donald trump is the guy who who like is the 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 center behind this you know renewed emphasis on on the superficial aspects and the comportment and the awkwardness or the physical appearance or the hand size or the whatever the hair the boots the, the risers and the shoes you know this era of american politics and somehow he is this black hole at the center of it who is immune, completely immune to any attacks on his own personal bearing and, and, and weirdness. So it's a bit of an odd time. And it's really amazing to me and, and kind of curious what you guys think that, I mean, you know, the vast majority, if not all of us are, you know, awkward in some way or broken in some way or, you know, imperfect and however you want to find what perfect is. And that no one has ever really figured out, at least in the last, I mean, I, I guess George W. Bush kind of did around, you know, sort of the alcoholism, uh, you know, thing in his youth, but that no one has really, like, that we all still want this Superman or Superwoman, um, you know, to be sort of the avatar of the nation as president, instead of like, you know, saying, I mean, and I guess, I guess, uh, finding more examples, I mean, I think Biden in a lot of ways, right? I mean, his, his appeal was the, you know, the, the sort of like, I've, you know, suffered real trauma in my life from you know things that happened obviously with his wife and children and those kind of things and you know, later his son. But uh you know it, it seems like you should be able to sort of like lean into that kind of stuff of like I'm I'm just like you. But I mean for you know Republicans, right? Going back to 2016, it is like the our you know our our you know air quotes version of like what we think a rich guy is like is is sort of where we're where we went. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, I, I want to talk for a moment about the the dynamic uh, that is affecting this race, I believe, more powerfully than any other. Um, and that is, you know, we see, you know, we've seen Haley's quote unquote rise, which really amounts to an increase that can be measured in single digits. Um, and, you know, we've seen uh, DeSantis underperform. You know, they're both essentially the same levels in some of these early state polls. And, you know, Trump is kind of bestride all of them. But he also, you know, he did this town hall this week with Sean Hannity, one that actually got pretty poor reviews, including from uh, uh, the Fox uh, voter uh, panel uh, the next morning on Fox and Friends. Uh, and then uh, also, you know, it sort of underperformed in terms of the number of people who tuned in to watch it. You know, he had to he gave this answer early on about how he would be a, a dictator for just one day. Uh, so that he could close the border and and uh, drill, baby, drill or whatever, uh, which doesn't really make any sense. Um, and uh, he was asked that in part because there's this just been this uh, cascade uh, from the New York Times, the Atlantic, the Economist, the Guardian, Politico, et cetera. All these different pieces warning that he's this, you know, encroaching uh, authoritarian that people need to be aware of and be fearful of in this moment. And you also had uh, this report in Axios about, you know, his planned cabinet, which includes a bunch of people who are super loyal uh, to him, but also some, some kind of off the beaten path picks 
uh, including oddly enough Jamie Dimon for for Treasury Secretary. And it's one of these things where you kind of see the media waking up to this stuff and paying attention to him again. But but I make the argument in my in my piece today, the Spectator, and and I've made it a couple of times now on TV that one of the big problems that Republicans face at this moment is that essentially Donald Trump got a buy for 2023. He just basically took the year off to do legal fights and to snipe from the from the sidelines and not really to engage in anything in particular. And of course, the White House takes pot shots at him and there's Democrats who obviously, you know, bring him up in the context of other things. But Democrats kind of shifted, you know, in the in the 2023 elections, the off year elections, certainly they emphasized abortion more than they did connections with Trump. Uh, and I think that, you know, the thing that you have to look at when it comes to that experience is. He has spent a year without any sustained media ad campaign combo against him. He hasn't had to endure it. He hasn't had anybody running up, you know, tons of negative anti-Trump ads within the context of the primary because he's not on the debate stage. Uh, and it's not nobody apparently feels like it's there in their interest to do it, except for Chris Christie. And he's running his campaign on a shoestring. And you don't have the kind of engagement that you would normally see against someone who is the likeliest nominee of a major party a year out from election day. And that to me just is a very challenging thing for analyzing stuff like what we saw from Sean Trendy and from, you know, but I would say a shared analysis with a lot of other people that say that he's the likeliest candidate uh, and that he's well positioned to win uh, or to be strongly competitive uh, with Joe Biden in every swing state. Uh, and that's something that I think is just not factoring in the fact that no one has been even punching him on a regular basis for essentially the last year. What do you both think about that? I think I'm going to sort of take the other side of that one to some extent, not not to defend Trump, but I mean, he has still been like, yeah, ab abortion was obviously a major issue and the campaigns Democrats have run but so is, you know, quote unquote, democracy, which I wish they would just say like election denial because it would A, be more clear and B, you know, it's like, yeah, you know, I think that's kind of a bad thing, too. But you know, th there's been this steady bleed of stories of legal challenges and indictments and raids of, you know, on, I mean, I, I guess sort of the other the, the question is what sticks, right? The Club for Growth tried to do some, you know, put some, you know, field tested some ads and they all drove up Trump favorables. You know, Trump gets indicted for, you know, basically keeping, you know, state secrets in the guest bathroom at Mar-a-Lago, and people think he's the one being persecuted. Um, you know, the, I, again, I, trust me, no one has said more that people need to engage him and not necessarily, you know, along the lines, you know, or in a different tack, but similar to what Chris Christie has done. And, well, but can know, I can I just suggest just to just to respond quickly to this? That is for a Republican primary audience, not a general election audience. And so that to me is actually the thing, the distinction that I think people aren't really calculating. Like nobody's been attacking Trump because it's it doesn't work to attack him with a Republican primary audience. You know, the Club for Growth is it is advertising presumably to Republicans and strong lean R independents. It's a completely different scenario when we're advertising to people who aren't naturally going to vote Republican, right? Well, I think there's a, there's a lot 
there's a lot here. But on that narrow point, Ben, I'm not sure that's right. I, look, if the if everyone knows that Trump murdered the world in uh, earned media, right, leading up to 2016, but he has since then as well. I mean, he's been the 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 main character in America and global political life for eight years, and. You know, there's nobody in the world who doesn't have a well-formed opinion on Trump. So if we're going to give him credit for the earned media that that boosted him to the White House, you have to take the other side of it, which is, again, The Atlantic magazine. I don't know who they think they're talking to doing a a front page, you know, a a full issue on how bad Trump is, you know, how Trump's going to be a bad president and and a dictator in 20, you know, at the end of 2023. As if there was a single centrist, center-left technocrat but, reader of the Dan, Atlantic, but Dan, but Dan, he's their, can be but Dan, but Dan, he's their star. It's the same reason Time names Taylor Swift. Yeah, but, <laughs> yeah. but that's what I'm saying. So I'm like, I think you're. I think, and this is why I say there's a lot to this because there's other aspects of it I want to talk about. But like, it's it's hard to argue that the average voter is not aware of the case against Donald Trump. Now that case has not been prosecuted by. Uh, people who are uh, from the Republican Party or who are otherwise center right, who want who don't want to see Trump come back. All the people who fit that description, who are making that case, are now just Dems. They're just bulwarkers and they're not just Democrats. Right. Or Liz Cheney's. Right. So, you know, but that case is being made to me. A more interesting question, and it's kind of related to your thesis, is. You know, we there could have been a pack. There could have been several packs. There could be organizations that are making the kind of belated attack. Not that we see Chris Christie make on Donald Trump, because that is much more a bulwark style attack, but rather the attack that Ron DeSantis is making on Donald Trump. That argument, he's too old. He didn't do, deliver what he promised the first time around. He's a lame duck the second he's sworn in. All of this stuff, Fauciism, all that stuff, there could have been big dollars making that case, which is a case, you know, contrary to what you said, Ben, that is a case for, for the Republican electorate. It's not a case for the for the general electorate. But there isn't there hasn't been that spending. You know, all these billionaires who are backing Nikki Haley, uh, you know, to come in second place. And we've seen reports now that, you know, maybe they're backing her because they want her to end up as the VP or you know, I think almost as delusional as that because they think that he'll be uh, forced to withdraw from the race or convicted and that someone will have to step up at a convention or after a convention to fill that slot. You know, all of those billionaires, if they had directed their money to a PAC spend, that all it did was sort of bet the field. I, I, I suggested this, I think, months and months ago on this podcast. They just bet the field or, or really just put that money into making that DeSantis style case from the right against Trump, it would be a much more different, a a much different race, I think. And that's a little bit different than your thesis. But, you know, I do think there's something there. So, I I mean, I I think that there's, you know, John, I'd like to hear more from you on on your perspective on this. I I think that there's a couple different ways to think about this. One is, this is Teflon Don, everything's baked in, everybody already has their opinions, nothing's going to move the needle, you know, etc. The other is, I think that all of these cases and these legal problems that he's had going on have essentially turned into just a bowl of soup. Nobody really knows what's going on with them. Nobody really knows what you know he did wrong or is accused of doing wrong. Uh, and I think that in the broader sphere 
of you know the voting electorate that isn't tuning in to News Nation to watch a debate in the middle of the week. Uh, I think that the only question on their minds is whether he's convicted or not. And what we've seen from the polling is that if he is convicted, that he suffers dramatically. What we also can't really measure, I don't think, is how long that suffering lasts. Does he go down, you know, eight, 10 points in a couple of polls uh, and then have an opportunity to make it back as people go to the grocery store and are looking at the news headlines and are reminded of how crappy of a president Joe Biden is? I don't know. But I just do think that there's something being left out of this mix uh, in the sense that there's we've had negativity between these Republican candidates. Uh, we've had uh, negativity, uh, you know, uh, from Trump toward those Republican candidates. Uh, but generally from the White House, what we've had is rah-rah Bidenomics uh, and uh, and sort of promotional stuff uh, as opposed to the tone that they had a year ago. Yeah. Well, I one thing a, ver a version of the sort of surprise, you know, that's not being captured by the polls is the convictions are real. Look, I, I've seen the polling, too. He does suffer if he's getting convicted. The question I have, and it's amazing that this is even a question, but the question I have about that polling is to what extent are those people answering the question, would I vote for Donald Trump from a prison cell? Right. Would I vote for Donald Trump if he was in jail? as opposed to if he had a conviction hanging over his head that's going to move through appellate courts and ultimately end up in the Supreme Court over a period of several years if he loses and will become a moot issue, at least with the federal charges, if he wins. Again, amazing that we're even talking about this, but I do think it's a legitimate question to ask. Separately from that, because I've seen the polling, yes, he gets hurt by a conviction. You know, it is true, and we've talked about this a little too, that if DeSantis goes into Iowa and wins, even if it's a squeaker, you know, that does, first of all, it will retroactively have revealed something about the polling, right? That there's, I, you know, I could totally see there being a kind of shy Tory effect within the GOP electorate, which say Trump supporters are much prouder and more outspoken and loud about their Trump support than DeSantis supporters or Haley supporters or whoever. So I could see there being a shy Tory effect. Caucuses are weird, hard to poll. DeSantis goes into Iowa, wins, you know, what would amount to an upset at this point, and is able to do something with that momentum. Like that, I have a little bit more of an easy time buying as something that will actually change the dynamic of the race. The other problem with the conviction stuff is the timeline doesn't work, right? Like, it, the goose will already be well cooked by the time convictions start rolling down. So it's it, it's going to be too late, even if the numbers are right, to stop him from being the nominee. I mean, th that certainly looks that way to me. So I don't know. I, I just hope we're not we're all guilty of wishful thinking, you know, because we don't want it to be the case. He's going to be the nominee. I mean, he is. And. I mean, as much as people you know, may not like that or want that, I mean, his support has only marginally, I'd say marginally, not even in a negative way, but has gone up at the margins over the last six months. Um, I, I think he is somebody, I mean, it's, it's funny in some ways, it's this, the, the, the dynamic between Biden and Trump is sort of goes back to like the, uh, you know, the Heath Ledger, Christian Bale, Batman movie of like each one kind of needs the other to some extent. I mean, in, Biden more or less said that right this week where, you know, if Trump yeah. wasn't running, maybe I wouldn't run. Uh, and I mean, I think Trump would have run no matter what, but I feel like he seems to 
you know, Biden seems to have become his, you know, his like his and his white whale, right? His sort of main antagonist. Um, but you know, Trump this year basically ran like the Biden twenty twenty campaign. I mean, you know, minus Biden not having you know, all these legal and court appearances. But you know, if you're if you're ahead by forty or fifty points over the field, right? You know, it's you know, well, presidential primaries. It's it's basketball before there was a shot clock, and he's just working it around the perimeter. You know, I think at the first, you know, and the run of the first debate, oh, what's it going to mean? Is he going to be seen as, you know, you know, conflict avoidant that, you know, he's not doing this or the voters are going to uh, you know, demand that he be there. And that just hasn't been the case. Um, again, if anything, you know, him, him as because he is generally his own worst enemy, the idea of Trump uh, and Trumpism, whatever that may be, um, seems to be more popular, at least in the abstract right now. Uh, we'll see when when he reengages. I, I, I still don't. I mean, I, I guess the point I was trying to make earlier, Ben, was that I mean, the media is still doing plenty on a regular basis, just in covering the trial that like 10 years ago, we would have said would have killed any politician. Mm-hmm. Um, and, the you know, so it's, it's not like that Trump isn't a part of people's lives. Certainly, if you look at the rhetoric of, of Democratic leaders, whether it's you know, minority leader Hakeem Jeffries or whoever. I mean, they still keep talking about, you know, extreme MAGA Republicans, that kind of stuff. So, I mean, they're still engaging with with sort of Trumpism as kind of the, as a foil, maybe not as much directly the man himself for now. But, um, you know, I, I don't, so even, even if DeSantis is, you know, was, does win Iowa, I'm still not really convinced that it means a whole lot. Um mm-hmm. You know, because if it did, we could talk to, you know, President Santorum and President Huckabee and, you know, was it John Edwards that won uh, a few cycles back or, you know, President Mayor Pete? Um, you know, it's it's kind of a unique state, right? It's a unique setup. I think on the Republican side, it's saw one of the Iowa hands on Twitter saying it's not like the Dem caucus where like there's, you know, different levels of preference. It's more of a straight like this is my first choice guy and that's it. Um but the only the only thing, and I basically agree with you, John, you know that. But like the only thing I will say is if DeSantis wins, what's different about that? And I've made exactly that point on Twitter and here and also like I, I, I'm still pretty much with you. The only difference is he would be beating an incumbent, essentially. So there there is there is that does tell you a little bit more, you know, that he that Trump is essentially the incumbent here. And, you know, so that that grain of salt, I guess, should be added. Yeah, but I, I mean, look, I think that, I mean, Trump is nothing but not a good explainer of failures not being his own, right? It was a corrupt bargain he struck with, you know, Kim Reynolds, the governor, you know, Iowa hates me until, you know, around election time where it's Iowa loves me. You know, I didn't, you know, finish first there in the, the primary last time. And, you know, the evangelicals are upset because I talked about, you know, working a deal on abortion or or, or whatever it is. Um, I, I think the problem for DeSantis is that the 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 schedule just doesn't i mean if, if nikki haley won iowa like then ah you know like new hampshire is like kind of a good state for her um you know south carolina obviously is a really good state for her uh like you, you could see like you could see her maybe as, i don't think she would but you could at least see a a narrative for her to kind of you know escape the gravitational pull that has been constant throughout this year uh but look i i think we're I think we're ready for. I mean, it's 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 a it's a Biden Trump matchup. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Period. Uh, 
so uh so i think that uh, you know i think that we're all pretty much uh you know in agreement on on this you know uh, one of our one of our last episodes of, of 2023 uh, i do kind of want to uh next week maybe go back and and do a real look back a hypothetical about like what could have been done differently if there could have been anything done differently you know and some of the other things uh questions along those lines but <clears throat> we would not be thunderdome if we didn't have another update about third-party candidates and uh john uh, i just wanted to tell you this actually literally came into my email box minutes mere minutes after we began recording for immediate release kennedy campaign wins major concession and utah ballot access lawsuit the lieutenant governor of uh utah has agreed to move the ballot access deadline from january 8th to march 5th 2024 and the reason that this matters it's not about signatures because Utah, you only need a thousand. Uh, it's that Utah requires you to have named a running mate. So essentially, uh, in in the next few weeks, RFK would have had to pick a running mate, uh, and now he has until March to do so uh, because it's still one of the earliest uh, deadlines. So How, how's that? I mean, how's that work though? For is that really a thing? I mean, because like I don't. Yep. I mean, Trump obviously didn't have a running mate, or is there just like a placeholder? <laughs> Sorry. Is there just a placeholder? I mean, has there historically just been a placeholder for? <laughs> yes, you have you have a placeholder, but this is for independent candidacies, meaning you are okay. not one of two major parties. Um, but yes, frequently what what's happened is they've had like a placeholder, like they did that with Evan McMullen before he named Mindy Finn. Um, uh, so it, it was it's it's uh, it, anyway, it's just just well, one more Mindy update. Finn. There's a, there's a name I didn't think I'd ever hear again. I mean, just like that's just like you just dusted off a couple of neurons of my. Oh, brain. oh my god! Right. You know the things <laughs> the things I remember about some of these cycles and some of these like uh, it, it takes up well, so, way way too much space in my brain, and I, I really you know I, I would much rather have um, you know be memorizing uh, uh, levels for uh, the latest video games or or I mean come on there's a there's a new there's a new uh, uh, modern warfare out that I haven't even you know considered buying know. because so anyway um wait so so I want to say one thing though is that is that someone should write a book I don't know enough, as much about this as I should but it's been a it's been a pet I know a little bit about it and it's been a pet peeve of mine for years which is that all of the ways in which the two-party system is baked into state level election law and federal election law in a way that it rigs the game against third parties. And that's a perfect example you just cited there. If you're yep. an independent candidate, you have to have named a running mate, but you don't if you're if you're a uh you know one of the one of the big two in the duopoly. So that you know that's that's an example of how we have never ever been riper now in the last 50 years, I would say at least, for including Perot, frankly, uh 92. We've never been riper for a potential third party upset or win, whether you're talking about a Kennedy or a mansion. And yet they've got all of these structural things to overcome. It's going to be a court case in state after state after state. And it just shows, you know, and meanwhile, you know, the Republican Party, which has essentially become a vehicle for one guy, you know, is enjoying all of the benefits of being, you know, part of the official duopoly, even though it doesn't represent the broad cross section of voter interest that it long did. And, 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 and that on a national level, it's just a husk. Like nobody exactly. even looks yeah. to them for anything anymore. It's uh, and, right, and a lot of the state, a lot of the state level GOP suck too. I mean, especially in the in formerly purple states. I mean, you want to talk about Oregon or Washington or or mm -hmm. Arizona? You know, they suck. 
And yet they're part of this duopoly. It's baked into federal and state election law. They've got all these in, in, built-in advantages. You know, I'm not a Kennedy guy, Lord knows, but, you know, it's going to be an uphill climb for him. And that's, uh, you know, that's there's something wrong with that. Is it for, I mean, for minor parties too? I mean, the libertarians or, you know, greens or whatever, or, or is that just people that are truly running as unaffiliated with any sort of party? I believe in Utah's case, it's only for the truly unaffiliated. Um, but there are different rules when it comes to a lot of these uh, third party candidacies. And you also have to obviously, you know, maintain certain vote levels, you know, in order to uh, gain that ballot access uh, over and over again, which is one of the reasons why, you know, sort of it's it's been in the, the libertarians as much as they're completely disorganized <laughs> libertarians uh they uh they do actually do a pretty good job of, of getting uh getting on all uh 50 states or at least on 48 uh very consistently so you're saying um, basically they're the old school fraternity that is uh you know kind of messes up at or 100 percent yes uh and they do have the best weed so um the, uh before i let you two go uh you know i like i said I, we want to do uh, one more episode uh, this year to kind of wrap things up and talk about things next week um, before we take a holly, holly, uh, holiday break. Um, but I I do want to, you know, uh, mark one more thing about this. It just seems to me that, you know, looking around the landscape of the the political moment today, the one thing that sticks in my mind about this DeSantis-Newsom debate is that you actually had two people who really did seem to be on top of things, regardless of whether they were sleazy in the case of, of Newsom uh, or stiff in the case of DeSantis uh, or anything along those lines. You just got the feeling that basic competence was there, that they could, you know, this is somebody who I could put in, you know, as I've said before, put in charge of a Dairy Queen uh, and, uh, you know, for a weekend and not have everything go to hell. And unfortunately, you know, I think we look around the political landscape and I'm not just saying this within the context of, of the of the presidential. I think we look around the political landscape today. We see what's happening in Washington. We see that the level of incompetence, uh, the level, you know, we've seen so many censures here in the last couple of weeks that he just kicked out George Santos the other day. Um, the And it, it is such an indictment, I think, uh, of the political class, but at the same time, it's the indictment of the voters who sent them there in the first place. And that's something that I think we really have to wrestle with as people who who want to have faith in the people, you know, in the same way that Calvin Coolidge did, in the same way that Ronald Reagan did, in the same way that a lot of, of you know, conservative tendencies through the, the years have been, trust the people over the expert class, the so-called expert class that believes they know better the bureau the bureaucrats who say i'm from the government and i'm here to help uh, and i think that that's something that we really have to wrestle with just given the class of people that they tend to be sending into all of these different jobs well yeah so there's one thing i want to say about that in particular i'll i'll go with the there's a great um there's a great letter from john adams it might be one of the letters from adams to jefferson it might be a letter to benjamin rush maybe but he talks about, and I'm just paraphrasing how, when we say that all men are created equal, we don't mean that every man is equally wise or capable or um, judicious or um, informed. We mean that everyone is equally a man and equally and has the and has the same sort of basic capacities to make 
uh, decisions about the the conduct of their own affairs. And this has been my version of conservatism since as long as I've been politically aware. And I think it's the real meaning of the um, William F. Buckley quote about the names in the Boston phone book, which is that, you know, it's not that you want you want um, it's not that the randos in the Boston phone book are going to be the most capable of running the federal government. It's that we want a federal government that is simple enough and whose duties are easy enough to discharge and whose ambit and scope is limited enough that you could entrust it to ordinary folks. And that's, you know, that that's still the ideal. I mean, it's very far from where we are now. But when I say I trust the average Joe more than I trust the expert class, there's a critical distinction there. I trust the average Joe more to handle his own affairs or her own affairs than I do the expert class. I don't trust them on, you know, nuclear energy policy, right? I, tr I trust them to make decisions for themselves and their families. So I think that's important. Now, on the broader question of the people we're sending to Congress, you know, I, I, I that, that could be a whole episode or a series of episodes, right? But I'll just say one brief thing. You know, communications platforms matter, technology matters the same way the Gutenberg printing press or network television changed politics. You talked about Richard Nixon earlier, right? One of the things we all learned in AP history class, I assume you guys are both AP history guys. Um, one of the things we learned is that, you know, the TV debates changed that race fundamentally. You know, Kennedy brought in a makeup artist. Nixon had a cold, looked like hell, right? Kennedy had TV people. Nixon didn't. And, you know, that was that, you know, that was a tight, that was a tight election. And that changed that debate, that televised debate, the first one changed that race. So technology matters. And to that extent, to that, you know, in that vein, you know, social media matters. And somebody like a, you want to take a Santos, you want to take a, a, a Marge Green, you want to take a Swalwell, um, other, you know, you, you know, AOC, whatever. Those are people who would have been like running zines, right? Like printing newsletters at Kinko's. Those are people who in the early days of the internet had sort of um, 1.0 kind of blogs, you know, uh, conspiracy theory newsletters, or, you know, sat in basements with bad coffee at meetings of the international workers of the world, you know, in the case of the people on the left. And now they have these platforms that that level up David's to, to the level of Goliath's. And you're able to unseat these, you know, much better financed, much more traditionally healed um, and bred uh, politicians because the technology has changed. So when you say we got to grapple with it and what it means to trust the people, I think a big part of that is the, these generation, you know, our generation, particularly Xers and, 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 and millennials and boomers too, but less so Gen y, uh, Gen y or, or Zoomers, you know, we don't know how to reckon with and change our way of seeing and interacting with the world, you know, based on these new technologies where I even see younger people, my nephews and nieces who are in their late teens, early 20s, I see that they're, they actually have a healthier relationship to social media than the boomer doom scrollers and the, and the millennials like us that dominate Twitter and, and uh, Instagram. So, you know, maybe there is hope in the future as people figure out how to change their level of skepticism or, or their sources for information or how they interact with the world or how seriously they take the digital life. You know, so maybe there's some hope there. I just think that social media is going to continue to be an engine for insane tribalism. 
and, and short of some sort of external shock that would be horrible. I mean, you're talking about something like a 9-11 style event, but I, I don't even know what would happen, right? I mean, if, you know, if you had a, a 9-11 now, you know, I mean, how many Republicans would blame Biden as, you know, kind of a blood on his hands sort of way? Um, you know, w- would there be the, you know, the sort of like, you know, singing, you know, God bless America on the steps of the Capitol? I'm not so sure. I mean, I think things have, have I think there's a lot of scar tissue there um, that this could be really hard to heal. And I'm not sure who deescalates it. I, I think the other thing, as I think about the, the first 500 names in the phone book, to sort of end up use this to kind of push one of my own hobby horses is, you know, like that might actually work if it was, you could sort of compel that. The problem we have now is if you did the first 500 names in the the phone book, only the ones that are like, you know, super political in a way that's probably unhealthy for like their own personal lives would be the ones to show up. Right. I mean, that's kind of what we get in primaries is the people that are, you know, it's, there's five-star Yelp reviews and there's zero star Yelp reviews. And there's really not much in between, uh, because those are the, you know, sort of the, uh, you know, uh, what was it uh, Charles Sumner, um, what, what, whatever the one that, you know, Coolidge would always talk about, like sort of like the forgotten man, um, you know, the person that's just, you know, paying their mortgage and watching their kids and trying to find some time to do stuff with their spouse. Um, you know, that, that, that guy or that lady is too busy or too disengaged because of life to engage in the political process. So yeah, if you have if that guy that's one of the 500 in the Boston phone book is a car mechanic and you somehow make it that he doesn't have to worry about fixing up cars to keep the lights on that day, then yeah, maybe, you know, there, there might be sort of a wisdom, you know, a wisdom of the masses and a common sense, but instead, you know, we've let the, the tail wag the dog in just a, you know, insane way. Um, and I mean, I think you're right to some extent about the, the duopoly, um, but I, I also don't know what would be better because all these places that have multiple parties, like it seems fairly unstable, especially where there's more than two sort of major parties. Um, but hey, maybe we can look uh, look to the north uh, to our our Canadian brethren with hope because it seems like if there was a parliamentary election there today, uh, you know the you know Trudeau's party would just get annihilated. Mm. Yeah. Well, I just want to give you both credit for quoting uh, one of the greatest monsters of the last century, William F. Buckley Jr. As, <laughs> as we all learned at this uh, past past week, uh, we ought to consider him uh, coming from someone who obviously gave the William F. Buckley speech just a few years ago. So not only no, that, but so look, that, that's important though because you know obviously uh, T- uh, Tucker Carlson's brother's name is Buckley, and his son's name is Buckley after his brother, but I I've not. I've not been able to nail down whether they were named after William F. Buckley. No, no, no. I think I think it's a yeah. family name. I think it's I think yeah, it's grandfather. But it's still it still would be pretty like awkward. Charles. I don't know about you guys, but I think it would just be pretty awkward if that if you think that one of history's greatest monsters is, you know, <laughs> also shares that name. Anyway, uh like I, I just think just to wrap things up, I, I think that one of the things that we have to grapple with as we move through this next sort of period of, of the process is regardless of whether Donald Trump wins or loses in November of next year. Um, I do believe that it's going to be, we're going to be entering kind of a post boomer era for the first time in our politics. Uh, and even, even if he you know, decided to run again, you know, I, I think we really are kind of crossing this threshold into a post boomer era. And what that demands of us, I think is going to be very different 
than what the boomer era, which lasted so long and cost so much money and involved the greatest redistribution of wealth in American history. Uh, you know, it, it, it really does. I think uh, it is incumbent upon us uh, as people who are in younger generations to, to analyze basically what went wrong with that? What what can be done differently? And how can we start to improve uh, the class of people who do have the time uh, to engage in politics, uh, to be the kind of forgotten man, but also to be able to engage in an effective way and not look up at this massive leviathan and basically say, I can't do anything, so I better just huddle down, keep my head down, not put any stickers or signs out on the yard. Uh, and hope nobody notices or asks what I actually want to do when it comes time to vote. So anyway, with that, for Dan, for John, I'm Ben Dominich. You've been listening to Thunderdome. We'll be back next week uh, with more to give some kind of understanding to this crazy 2024 election. <laughs>